Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Chinese companies with global ambitions are under increasing pressure from both critics abroad and the authorities back home. Can a new generation of Chinese multinationals survive the onslaught and even prosper? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Simon Long and also coming up on today's show, can Europe's latest green plan plug the leaks in the world's biggest carbon market? Essentially, you have this level playing field and you don't get the situation where foreign producers just outcompete the domestic ones. And why online shopping is about to become a whole lot more chatty. Uh, I imagine in a future where you basically just say, I'm looking for a toy for a five-year-old that's into sports that costs $35 and get back one or two perfect recommendations. But first, we want to continue to do business in China. We want to help American businesses export to China. The Biden administration has picked up where Donald Trump's left off in its relationship with China. But we also need to protect Americans, American workers, our American national security, our core proprietary technology. And we will do that. On Tuesday, it stepped up its warnings about the risks of doing business in the Xinjiang region after adding 14 more Chinese companies to its economic blacklist for alleged links to human rights abuses there. And in the past month, it's banned American investment in Chinese defence and surveillance companies and has ordered a security review of apps connected to so-called foreign adversaries. Britain is no friendlier. We have to judge uh, whether uh, the stuff that they are making is uh, of you know, real uh, intellectual property uh, value and interest to, to, to China, whether the real security uh, implications. Last week, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, announced an investigation into the Chinese acquisition of Britain's largest semiconductor maker. I've asked the National Security Advisor to, to look at it. And at home in China, there are other problems. On July the 12th, the Wall Street Journal reported that ByteDance, which owns the hit social video platform TikTok, had shelved plans for a foreign share listing after Chinese regulators asked the company to fix data security risks. The headwinds, both foreign and domestic, are blowing stronger. So is Chinese businesses' big global push in retreat? China's global ambitions often appear to be on the back foot. But look closer and there's a cohort of Chinese companies that are adapting and even thriving in this hostile environment. Don Weiland is our China business and finance editor. The sheer scale of China Inc. often goes unnoticed in Western countries. So the best estimate that we have is that there's about 
3,400 multinational Chinese companies. Um, so that would make almost as many as America and Western Europe combined. That's an estimate from Bain, the consultancy. Most of these companies are unknown to people in Western countries. There's more than 75 listed Chinese companies that brought in over a billion dollars overseas apiece over the last year. The top 10 brought in about 230 billion from overseas last year. So the scale is is quite big. And I don't think that that's fully understood overseas yet. And I suppose there are also what we think of as non-Chinese companies that are actually Chinese-owned. I mean, what's happening with Chinese investment abroad? So over the past couple of years, the value of Chinese M&A activity, mergers and acquisition activity, has really collapsed. Um, in 2016, Chinese companies were spending something like $200 billion overseas to buy things like hotels and banks and, you know, whatever. That's really stopped. Uh, in, in 2020, they only spent about $36 billion overseas. But at the same time, China is actually still the largest investor when it comes to outbound foreign direct investment. What's changed is Chinese companies now, are, are they're investing less through M&A-related activities, but they're bringing in more earnings overseas, and they're reinvesting these earnings. Another bright spot for Chinese investment overseas is venture capital investments. So one would think that given the, the poor relations with the U.S., that you wouldn't really see a whole lot of VC investment, you know, which is often associated with, with high-tech stuff. But actually, it's surging. All of this has happened remarkably quickly, hasn't it? I mean, wh when did this foreign expansion become a Chinese priority? So globalization really wasn't on the Chinese agenda until the late 1990s. It was around that time that Chinese leaders began to promote this idea of going out. They needed their exporters to go overseas, open up production facilities overseas in order to maintain their export markets. And they also needed to go and buy natural resources overseas as well. It was really when Chinese companies began to buy foreign brands and technologies that average people would have noticed. So one, one thing that does come to mind is the acquisition of IBM's personal computing unit. That was bought by Legend Holdings in, in 2005, and they changed the name to Lenovo. So now, I mean, Lenovo computers are all over the place, um, but that is the original IBM personal computing unit. By the time we get to 2015 and 2016, Chinese companies really are buying up everything under the sun. This trend didn't last long, and part of that is because the Chinese government was very unhappy with seeing all of this capital flooding out of its, its borders. And there was also a lot of pushback from Western companies as well. Sensitive technology that was being bought up got a lot of attention from regulators. So by the time we get to 2018, we see that Chinese companies are really having to adapt if they want to continue investing overseas. And how would you distinguish this generation of Chinese firms in their foreign dealings from, from their predecessors? It's, it's really a big change. So when you're looking at some of the more advanced global Chinese companies, I mean, what one thing that you'll realize is that a lot of them are not buying overseas technology and then, I guess, repackaging it and selling it again. A lot of them are developing their own technology. If you look at the electric vehicle business, Chinese companies are really surging to the forefront of this. Um, there's companies like Cattle and S-Fault. A lot of this is developed in China. 
exporting these technologies as opposed to importing it as we saw in the past. And does that mean, as you were suggesting maybe earlier, that we've seen the end of the sort of splash headlines, China acquires and some monster acquisition deal with a, with a Chinese company behind it? You're certainly not seeing a lot of those headlines right now. When you go back to 2016, 2017, there were plenty of billion-dollar deals. In 2016, there was the, the famous $43 billion acquisition of Syngenta, the Swiss agrochemical company. Nowadays, you're seeing much, much smaller investments. So this year, there's only been three outbound Chinese acquisitions that have been valued over a billion dollars. And that's out of 235 separate deals. So the, the deal size is coming down a lot. Tencent, for example, has been doing a lot of these. And you know, usually it's buying a very small stake in the companies that it's looking at. It bought a 4% stake in the Japanese internet group Rakuten for $600 million. It also bought a $150 million stake in the news aggregation site Reddit in the US. That, of course, led to a lot of speculation that the Chinese owners might begin to censor the information on Reddit. I, I don't think that that's played out in that way. I suppose that leads to another question, which is how are Chinese companies managing their foreign acquisitions now? Are they, are they signifying them or are they leaving them be? That's a really important part of this whole process. So when you're looking at some of the more high-profile companies at this point, they're really leaving their foreign managers intact. This is really important. I mean, there's been a lot of situations where Chinese companies have bought a foreign brand and then installed a Chinese manager. And that, you know, it's led to a lot of problems for the companies overseas and in, in China. You have companies like Geely, which purchased the car company Volvo several years ago. Most of the board of Volvo is still Swedish or, or European. You know, they haven't gone in and, and shaken everything up and tried to change the company culture. Syngenta, which is owned by a state-owned company, still has a, a mainly foreign board. Their executives are foreign. It's planning a, an IPO on the Shanghai Star Board later this year. And it, if it pulls that off, it will be one of the first companies to list a foreign RAN and foreign headquartered company in, in China. It'd be quite a, quite a feat. That's quite a change of style. The, the, from what you're saying, it still seems to be the exception rather than the rule. But what does all of this say about the, the future prospects of China, Inc., and, and how foreign business should respond? I think that a lot of companies that were bought by China in recent years are still probably managed not up to global standards. But it's important to look at these these companies that are doing well and you know recognize that, that China is moving up the value chain. In terms of where this goes in the future, you know, the US is terrified about Chinese companies developing their own technology and this type of technology ending up in U.S. Uh, systems and the systems of our allies. Huawei was an example of this. And from the Chinese perspective, American technology in, in their critical systems is, is also a national security issue. If this goes forward and you know, China is able to keep on track and its companies do become you know, powerhouses for, for developing their own technology, the, the U.S. is going to have to change its strategy because I, I don't think they're going to be able to hold back this wave of Chinese tech that is kind of hitting the globe right now. Don Wyland, thank you very much. Thank you. 
There'll be much more on China's relationship with the world in this week's issue of the Money Talks newsletter. It's published every Thursday, and you can sign up for free at economist.com slash moneytalks. That's economist.com slash moneytalks, and the link's in the notes of this episode. You can also tune in to our podcast on American politics, Checks and Balance, on Friday, where the team will be taking a closer look at why President Joe Biden paints rivalry with Beijing as a zero-sum game. That's Checks and Balance, wherever you get your podcasts. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A -a one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Next. This is Europe's man-on-the-moon moment. Ursula von der Leyen, president of the European Commission, wants the EU to lead a global transition to greener economies. Europe is now the very first continent that presents a comprehensive architecture to meet our climate ambitions. Today, the Commission unveiled its plans to get there, to reduce the EU's greenhouse gas emissions by 55% by 2030, compared with 1990 levels. Our package aims to combine the reduction of emissions with measures to preserve nature and to put jobs and social balance at the heart of this transformation. But no man is an island, and the same goes for single markets. The way to think about this is that the EU is trying to stop foreign companies from undermining its efforts to save the planet. Samir Keynes is our Europe economics editor. In the past, it's tried to do this by essentially protecting domestic polluters by giving them handouts. And what it's tried to do today is change that approach. Instead of giving out these subsidies, it wants to hit foreigners instead, making sure that imported products bear the same costs as domestically made ones. Let's look at the current system for the moment. I mean, its emissions trading system is the biggest carbon market in the world, isn't it? What's going wrong with it? Yeah, so stepping back, just explaining what the emissions trading system is, um, it's a scheme whereby the European Union essentially allocates a certain amount of carbon that it's happy for for various sectors to emit. And then companies have to buy permits. That's all fine. But there's a risk, which is that if you force polluters to pay for these expensive permits, then they get outcompeted by foreign companies who don't have to buy the permits. So what the European Union did is it said, okay, well, to protect domestic companies, we are going to give certain sectors that are vulnerable to this foreign competition, free permits. And this is a big handout, about two-fifths of carbon permits between 2021 and 2030 are due to be just handed out under the current rules. 
In theory, that's okay, right? The the freebies, they should offer similar incentives to the paid permits um, because companies should be able to make a profit if they can just sell the permit and emit less carbon. But in practice, that's not really how the system has worked. Companies know that if they sell then next time, they're not going to get so many free permits. Um, So that just generally dulls the incentives provided by the scheme to cut carbon emissions. So the EU ends up, in effect, subsidising its own polluters. How, how is the, the new system going to change all that? Well, they want to remove that subsidy. They want to remove the, the free permits over a period of 10 years for specific sectors, for steel, cement, aluminium and, and fertiliser. And they also want to introduce what is known as a carbon border adjustment mechanism, or CBAM. So now, if you want to import one of those products, you are going to have to buy a certificate to cover the the carbon emitted in the process of of making one of those products. Um, So the idea is that you'll withdraw the free permits internally that will impose higher costs on these companies. You would expect the price of steel, cement, aluminium and fertilizer to increase. But at the same time, imported products are going to face this extra burden of these CBAM certificates. So prices of imports should increase as well. So essentially, you have this level playing field and you don't get the situation where foreign producers just swoop in and outcompete the domestic ones. So it becomes a kind of border tax on imported carbon. And, and has the EU worked out what impact this will have? Yeah, so there are a lot of numbers in a very lengthy impact assessment that I have had the pleasure of reading. <laughs> Broadly speaking, you've got to split this into its various components because this is just part of a, of a bigger package, right? The, the European Commission also wants to do a bunch of other things. It wants to reduce the number of permits. It wants to expand the scope of this thing. And all of that should contribute to lower emissions within the EU. It all should contribute to a higher carbon price, which should create new incentives for domestic companies to cut their carbon. So what happens if you then withdraw the free permits? Well, then emissions fall within the EU. But the impact assessment says that that is pretty much entirely offset by higher emissions overseas. This carbon leakage effect is is pretty big. So then you have the CBAM. Emissions fall at home, But the carbon border adjustment mechanism actually reinforces the effect. You've got these really nice incentives, right? So you're a foreign exporter trying to send your products to the EU. You suddenly face this cost of carbon. It should encourage you to reduce your own carbon emissions. Um, It should maybe encourage your governments to introduce carbon prices for you. Under the EU scheme, they, they're proposing to credit companies if they've already paid for the cost of carbon associated with their product in a different country. So if this works perfectly, then a CBAM should, should really reinforce the effects of the, the European Commission's broader proposals, all of which are going to increase the, the price of carbon. One interesting experiment in in this sort of area we've talked about before on Money Talks is is California. Uh, What does what happened there suggest about how well this type of scheme is likely to work? Yeah, so the California experience does speak to one of the unintended consequences of this, resource shuffling. So the issue is that 
what foreign producers could do is say, mm, fine, we'll send you our clean production and we'll just divert our dirtier production to other markets. And we know that in California, that, that has been an issue. They have something similar with their electricity market. Now, there are other risks out there. There could be leaks elsewhere in, in the supply chain, essentially. So supposing steel gets more expensive because of this carbon border adjustment mechanism, then maybe you're a car producer in the EU um, and you you say, well, instead, I'm just going to import the whole body of the car because it's cheaper. And, and this more processed product doesn't face this carbon price, right? And so in that way, these efforts could be undermined. And then the final unintended consequence is that European exporters could be hit. You're trying to level the domestic playing field, but suddenly if you're a European steelmaker, you have to now pay for the cost of carbon, whereas your competitors in third markets don't. And presumably those countries exporting to the EU will look on it not just as an adjustment mechanism, but as a tax and some must be objecting. Yes, they are. You are already hearing grumbles. The likes of China, um, India, Australia have voiced their concerns. Now, a lot of the, the devil will be in the detail. The EU would argue that really they're just extending a domestic system to foreign companies. So it's not discriminating, right? The, the big no-no when it comes to the international trade rules is treating foreign companies worse than your own. But even the best designed scheme, you can be sure that other countries are not going to be happy about essentially a tariff on products being sent into the EU. And within the EU, is there a consensus? Or, I mean, is it certainly going to happen, this new proposal? Oh, well, you see, that is the billion dollar question. And already we're hearing calls from European politicians to water down the, the withdrawal of the free permits, to make the, the border adjustment broader. So there will be a real battle. More broadly, a lot of people are watching this process. They're watching to see the precedent that this scheme will set. And for my part, I really hope that the EU makes it a good one. Sumaya Keynes, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. And finally, the past year has been a huge boon for messaging apps. Around 80% of time spent on mobile devices is now spent on chat apps. And where people go, business follows. Conversations between people and businesses on Instagram and Facebook Messenger have grown by more than 40% in the past year. Now, more and more brands are using these apps to offer a highly personalised, seamless way to shop. Yeah, I think we're at the beginning stages of a mega trend. Mark Lurie is a serial entrepreneur and, until earlier this year, chief executive of Walmart's online business, where he doubled its market share. Our technology and business editor, Tamsin Booth, spoke to him for Money Talks. What I call conversational commerce is sort of the, the end goal here, where people can talk in their natural language. I think the, the sort of business apps chatting with the humans in the loop, you know, humans behind a large part of it, uh, although a lot of it is, is automated to the basic stuff, were sort of where the internet was, e-commerce, sort of in the late 90s. You know, it's early stages right now, but I do expect there to be quite a 
steep incline here as we as we start coming into the next couple of decades. And Mark, you as much as anyone have really brought the kind of the current era of e-commerce into being um, with the companies that you founded. Are you criticizing e-commerce as it exists today? Not necessarily criticizing it because there's there's incredible efficiencies again of not having to get on the phone and communicate every time you want to buy something. What is e-commerce is basically a digitized catalog. But ideally, I think what people want is sort of the the combination of both. Like, can it be just as efficient as e-commerce is today, but with the convenience of just jumping on the phone and, and, and talking to an expert that knows you as well as your best friend? That's the end goal. So I think we're, we've taken a big step forward with e-commerce the last two decades. But two decades from now, I could imagine the search engine going the way of the, the cassette tape. Kids, you know, laugh at the thought that, you know, we're typing toaster into a search engine and getting 10,000 responses and having to you know, weed through all the different toasters to figure out which one is ideal. Uh, I imagine in a future where you basically just say, I'm looking for a toy for a five-year-old that's into sports that costs $35 and get back one or two perfect recommendations. And today, obviously that's possible through, through, through messaging, through text, but there needs to be a human in the loop today. I enjoyed hearing Google being compared to a cassette tape. I don't think that comparison gets made very often. So with business messaging at the moment, do you think humans are in the loop most of the time, especially since it's largely an emerging market phenomenon where maybe labor costs are a bit cheaper? Yeah, I I think in in the early stages of the conversation, there's computer that you're talking to on, on very basic stuff. But yeah, as soon as the questions get more complicated, then you're seeing humans in the loop. Yeah. But for a lot of customer service inquiries, the questions are very standard and could be answered by a computer because the questions come up a high percentage of the time. What kind like, of question, Mark? Questions would be like, where's my order? Uh, that's a very common question that you'll get. And if that's the case, there's ways to recognize different ways to ask that question and then look up your tracking number. Like there's ways to automate that stuff today. I think when you open it up to shopping in general, and especially from a mass merchant that sells everything, the problem gets exponentially more complicated. And how convinced are you that AI will be able to do this in the future? It sounds a bit like the Turing test famously, right? Where the definition of whether a computer is intelligent is whether it can hold a conversation where you can't tell if it's a human or a computer. There must be a big question mark over whether yeah. a computer can do this. No, I, I think what you just said there about being able to talk like a human, that's a much harder problem than to focus just on either buying a product uh, or getting a, a recommendation for a product or simply saying the product you want. There's really three primary use cases there. In all cases, you're talking about a product and there is a finite number of products and there is a way to, you know, categorize all products. So yeah, there is a way to do it and, and get it to a point where it's contained. Even still, we're talking 20 years and we're talking seeing billions of conversations with humans in the loop to be able to use AI to automate those communications. So it, it is very challenging, but doable. Can you tell us just briefly how Jetlack went? Because this was an experimental service, right? A personal shopping service that Walmart ran while you were running the company's digital efforts. Yes, it was really about the customer. 
you know, did customers love it? Were they going to use it for all their shopping needs? Were they going to ask for gift recommendations? Like, how are they going to use it? And quite frankly, it, it, it blew us away. It exceeded our expectations. People got the Jet Black app and would converse and, and buy, you know, five times more than they were buying previously. So we know the demand is there. And if someone builds it, the people will come. It's still very expensive and such a high percentage of conversations. You had humans in the loop. And like I said, it would take a lot of capital to see enough conversations to, to get through to the point where the automation was 95 plus percent. How do you see C-commerce, that is conversational commerce, relating to one of the other megatrends in retail, social commerce of the kind you see so much of in China and elsewhere? I do think they come together in, in a really nice, interesting way. Imagine you know, conversing via text or voice and in, infusing into the conversation would be an influencer that you trust and being able to converse with the influencer to figure out what they think about the product, why they're recommending the product. And that will happen. And it's already starting to happen. You're starting to see a little bit of the convergence now. But I think fast forward again, 10, 20 years from now, uh, I'd imagine that would be a, a really interesting part of the conversation. Our thanks to Mark Lurie and to Tamsin Booth. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. For full access to The Economist's analysis of the latest in business and beyond, it's never too late to subscribe. There's a special offer for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer. That link also is in the show notes. The producer is Amika Shortino-Nolan. Nico Ralfast is our sound engineer. And the editor is Sandra Shruelli. I'm Simon Long. And in London, this is The Economist. I'm Andrea, founder of a boutique handbag brand, Andy, and this is why I switched to Shopify. I tried three other platforms prior to Shopify, and I remember my breaking point was when I would try to make one little change and my entire site would go down. Shopify made it really easy for me to shift everything over and hit the ground running. I was able to migrate my products and all of my customer information over. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Go to shopify.com slash listen to take your business to the next level today. 